You know, earlier, Craig quoted Romans, and he singled out James. And uh, I don't know if our translations are different or what, but, but mine actually says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but especially James Mayer. So, sorry. As we close our sermon series in the life of King David, it's safe to say that our story has been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. David, the unassuming shepherd, is anointed by the prophet Samuel to replace the corrupt King Saul. So David experiences the high of defeating the giant Goliath, immediately followed by the low of running from bloodthirsty King Saul and hiding in caves. There's the high of the second Samuel seven promise that God would establish David's house forever, followed by the low of David's sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. As you read the story of David's life, you realize just how often we go up and down, up and down. But as we left off last week, maybe just maybe things have finally stabilized a bit. Yes, David's sin with Bathsheba was heinous. And the immediate consequences of that sin were tragic. But David has repented and God has since forgiven him. So as we pick up today, we focus on the end of King David's reign. But even more importantly, the legacy that King David leaves behind. The pages of history are filled with stories of kings making both good decisions and bad decisions, all driven by a desperate concern for their legacy. How will people remember them? What will people say at their funerals? As we get older, we often worry about our own legacies as well. How will people remember us? And so after all the ups and downs of his life, the victories and the failures, the moments of obedience and the moments of sin, how will King David be remembered? What will people say at his funeral? What is King David's legacy? So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the privilege of coming together and being not only in the presence of each other, but being in your presence. Thank you that because of what your son Jesus has done for us, we have the confidence to pray to you, the confidence to speak to you and know that you hear us and know that you want to hear from us. Thank you that we have the privilege of gathering as a church, people who are very, very different in lots of different ways. And yet we call each other brother and sister. We're so grateful for that. Father, be with our brothers and sisters currently uh, who are serving at the Freedom Festival. I pray that we would make a good impression on the community around us, that we would let the community know that we care about them and uh, do the ultimate act of service by bringing the good news of Christ to this community. And Father, be with us as we hear from your word, as we spend the next 30 minutes or so worshiping and praising you. Uh, again, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. And it's all because of Christ, and we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, when you think about the legacy of a king, you normally look at two 
primary areas. You want to look at the king's family. And then, of course, you want to look at his kingdom. Well, if you remember last week, the prophet Nathan's pronouncement concerning David's legacy was not exactly optimistic. In 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 11, right after David's sin with Bathsheba, God says this. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of the rest of David's reign. And sure enough, not long after this pronouncement of judgment, David's family and David's kingdom seemingly begin to crumble. Just when we thought things might be getting back to normal, we see a horrifying example of family breakdown and wickedness. In 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amnon deceives and rapes his half-sister Tamar. Now, what's sad about it is that, if you're really honest about it, David can't even say much. After how he treated Bathsheba, he has no moral high ground left to address a sin like this from his son. Tamar's brother Absalom ultimately avenges his sister by murdering Amnon. David had many wives. Absalom and Tamar were siblings from the same woman. Amnon was a child from a different wife. Now, of course, when Absalom murders Amnon, it looks bad for Absalom at first. He has to flee Jerusalem because of his crime, kind of like when Moses fled to Egypt after killing an Egyptian servant. But eventually, Absalom actually starts to garner quite the fan club. Everyone knows that David's getting older. He's not quite as revered as he once was. The throne of David doesn't have the same mystique. That it once did. And Absalom is next in line for the throne. Couldn't Israel use a fresh young face anyway? Well, that situation eventually dissolves into a flat out mutiny, a civil war of sorts. David has to flee from his own son, just like the old days of running from Saul. However, Absalom is eventually killed by David's military commander, Joab. And David regains his throne. Back to normal, right? Well, not exactly. You see, the conduct of David's son is not the only problem he has to deal with late in his reign. Some Israelites attempt a rebellion against David. Now, that would have been unspeakable at the peak of his reign, when he was on top of the world. Nobody would have rebelled against David. He was beloved. But David simply doesn't have the support that he once did. The book of 2 Samuel ends with David arrogantly taking a census of his military, as if he's insecure, lacking trust in God, wanting to make sure that he has enough people to keep his kingdom safe. He's warned against this by Joab, of all people. And if the reckless Joab says something is a bad idea, then it really is a bad idea. But David persists, and Israel pays dearly for his hubris and his poor judgment. 
So when you end 2 Samuel, it seems as though everything is falling apart. And to be honest, things don't look much better for David at the beginning of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that the lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. We see a very different David in these verses. The once strong, handsome, young king is now so old that he can't even leave home without a blanket. If nothing else, these verses per- if nothing else, these verses tell us that David is in no shape to run a kingdom, much less a kingdom with very ambitious young sons, maybe fighting for his throne. David's given the opportunity to sleep with the most beautiful woman in all of Israel, but he doesn't take it. Maybe those verses show us that he learned his lesson from the last time he slept with a beautiful young woman who wasn't his wife, Bathsheba. Or maybe these verses emphasize just how far David has fallen. He's not the virile young man he once was. He's old and frail. And his guidance to his son Solomon, the next king of Israel, David comes across as angry, vindictive. But on the bright side, he set up Solomon for success in doing the one thing that David never got to do. He set Solomon up to build the temple for God. David dies. He's buried with his father's. Solomon takes over the end of an era. Now, when Solomon takes the throne, all appears to be well. In fact, based on early results, Solomon could end up being an even greater king than David was. Solomon is humble, wise, powerful, exceedingly wealthy, and he's successful in building that temple that David wanted to build so badly. But like David... Solomon's fall begins with lust. You could say the apple does not fall far from the tree. Solomon marries foreign women who lure him into worshiping false gods. And the generations after Solomon are even worse. The kingdom splits in two. There's a revolving door of leadership on both sides, often due to assassination. And most of the kings are wicked. The northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah falls to Babylon in 586 B.C. And when you put it all together, it seems as though that everything God has built through David has come crashing down. Now, how much of the blame belongs to David? Hard to say. But you do have to ask that at this point, the way everything has crumbled, How can David's legacy possibly be redeemed? He is damaged goods, and his legacy is beyond repair. And yet, by the time you reach the New Testament, 
there are people still talking about David. Even after the ups and downs, mostly downs, of life after David, God's people still remember that promise. The promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7. The promise that God would anoint a king from David's family who would reign forever. When Jesus enters the picture, the hope that God will send that victorious deliverer is still alive and well. When Jesus enters the picture, people are still hoping and longing for some military ruler who will come in and put Israel back on top. They'll be powerful again. They'll be wealthy again. It'll be like another David. But this David won't fall. This David will defeat Rome once and for all. This David will put us back into our rightful place of honor and glory. That hope still exists. And when people see Jesus, they think that he just might be the man that they're looking for. We see that hope in a passage like Mark chapter 10. We see there in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Minor request. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Some of Jesus's own apostles think he might be the savior that Israel has been waiting for, the son of David. And they want positions of power in his new administration. James wants to be vice president. John wants to be speaker of the house. A blind man shares the same hope in verses 46 through 48. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man shares the exact same wishes for Jesus. That he is the son of David who will put them back on top. And not just that, he's the son of David who can even heal his blindness. But Jesus doesn't exactly play along with these assumptions. He makes it clear to James and John and the rest of the apostles that he came to serve, not be served. He came to die, not to kill. We see more in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41, this time with the Pharisees. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Duh. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So the Pharisees wonder if Jesus just might be the son of David they've been longing for. Jesus knows that, so Jesus brings it up. And he never denies that he's the son of David. He never says it's not true. But it is clear that 
that doesn't mean what the Pharisees think it means. He's far more than the son of David that they're expecting. In fact, he's far greater than David. And in a way that they can't yet understand, he always has been greater than David. In that day and age, in that culture, no father, no grandfather, no ancestor of any type would call their son or their grandson or their descendant Lord. You didn't do that. But in Psalm 110, Jesus says that David calls him Lord, whether David fully understood it at the time or not. You go on in the New Testament and after Jesus's death and resurrection in the first Christian sermon, no less. Peter brings up David. Acts chapter two, verse twenty nine. Peter says, David both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And then later, for David did not ascend into the heavens. The message of Peter's sermon is that as great as David was and he was great. David died, and he's still dead. Peter says, if you went and dug up David, you wouldn't like what you'd see. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. You can go look in Jesus' tomb if you want, but it's empty. David's still on the ground. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he is ruling and reigning at this very moment. And one day will return. Peter makes it clear that Jesus is far greater than David. He always has been. And he always will be. There's another sermon in the book of Acts where Paul brings up David as well. He goes on this big, long history of the people of Israel. And he says in Acts chapter 13, verse 21. Then the Israelites asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul quotes 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. This beautiful passage where David is described as a man after God's heart. Now, as flattering as that phrase is, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is still greater than David. Because Jesus is not just a man after God's heart. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not just a good king who did some good things, even though he made some mistakes here and there. Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the promised Savior, the one that everyone was hoping for from 2 Samuel 7, even if he didn't meet all of their expectations. And then finally, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. In some of the final words of Jesus recorded in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I mean, think about that. Jesus has no shortage of titles that he could use to accurately describe himself. And yet, in some of his final words in the New Testament, Jesus chooses this title. The son of David. The root of David. 
the bright and morning star. Talk about a way to end. So you put it all together, and in light of everything that has happened in David's roller coaster ride of a life, in light of everything that happened in his family and his kingdom after he was gone, and in light of everything said about David in the New Testament, has David's legacy been redeemed? Well, I think the answer is yes. But the truth is that David's legacy isn't good because of anything that David did. It's not good because David was righteous, because as we've seen, David was not righteous. David's legacy is good by the grace of God alone. And the same is true of you and me and every other believer who has died before us. Because the truth is that we're not much different from David when you think about it. We are people created and called by God to reflect his image in the world around us. And yet, we fall flat on our faces because of sin. But like David's story, your story and my story, tarred by our own sin and the destruction that it leaves in its wake, your story and my story can be redeemed by the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the promised Savior. So again, the question is, what is David's legacy? What would they say at his funeral? How should David be remembered? Well, the same way I hope you and I will be remembered. I hope at our funerals people will say that, you know, he was a sinful person loved by God, but he loved God in return. He was a sinful person who, despite his rebellion, was used by God as God saw fit. Because the truth is, while every single one of us possesses a sinful, rebellious heart, David says something about that in Psalm 139. While that might be true, I pray that we would also be described as people who chase after God's heart, like David was described. So in spite of all his early success, David didn't go down as the perfect king. And he was far from a savior. But what's true of David is that God used him as just one small piece in the puzzle in his plan to redeem sinners for Jesus Christ, the son of David. I pray that would be true of us, that even though we are sinful, our legacies are redeemed, not by us, not by our works, but by Christ. I pray that people would say that we were people who chased after God's heart. I pray that people would say that, you know, that person was just one small piece in the puzzle. A piece of the puzzle that God used to bring sinners to Christ. To bring people's eyes to the son of David. The root of David. The promised savior of 2 Samuel 7. Who will reign forever. And when you think about it. There are much worse legacies to have than that. So I pray that would be ours. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, we gather here as sinners. But we also gather here as saints. We are sinners in and of ourselves. We are saints because of what your son Jesus has done for us. 
And Father, again, we're not much different from David. Our sins might not be the same as David's. They might not look the same as David's, but in the big scheme of things, they're just as sinful. We may not have ever taken someone like Bathsheba. We may not have ever killed someone like Uriah. We may not have taken an arrogant census because we didn't trust in you because we were prideful or arrogant. Our sins might look different, but we come to your presence just as sinful as David did. We come to your presence just as much in need of repentance as David did. But in the same way that you redeemed David's legacy, you can redeem our legacies. In the same way that David's story wasn't over when he fell short of your glory, when David's story wasn't over when he died. In the same way our stories aren't over when we fall short. Our stories aren't over when we die. Because we have hope in Christ. So Father, remind us of that this day. I pray that would be a source of joy for us, a source of comfort, a source of security. I pray that we would simply submit ourselves to you as our Savior, you as our Father. Thank you that you're doing things right now that we don't fully understand to redeem sinners like us. Thank you for what you've done in the past. Thank you for what you will do in the future. We love you. We trust you. We place our hope. We place our confidence. We place our legacies in your hands, knowing that you have the power to redeem them. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.